Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be exploring the history of the Hui, the Muslim minority community of the People's Republic of China, sometimes known as the Sino-Muslims. Well, I opened up as usual saying, I'm your host. But in this episode of Akbar's Chamber, we're changing things round a little bit. This episode is a collaboration with the newly launched Chinese History podcast, and I was interviewed for the Chinese History podcast by Yiming Ha, who is a PhD candidate at UCLA, whose research is on military mobilization and state building in China between the 13th and the 17th centuries. So in this episode, Yiming is the host and I'm going to be the, well, I suppose the titular expert, although I'm actually relying upon the work of various other scholars, as well as my own research on the 19th and 20th century, when, as we'll see, Hui Muslims came to increasingly interact with other Muslims, whether in India and what's now Pakistan, and also the Middle East, especially Egypt. Over the course of the next hour or so, we'll be looking at the medieval origins of the, the Hui, these distinctively Chinese-speaking, as distinct from the Uyghur or Turkic Muslim minority of the western Xinjiang region of China. So we'll be looking at the debates over how this Chinese-speaking Muslim minority of China emerged, and then their connections throughout the early modern period, and particularly the modern age of steam and print, and indeed European empire, that ironically enabled Chinese Muslims to go on the Hajj increasingly from the later 19th century and also to learn other languages, Urdu and especially Arabic, that were over time the cause of very major doctrinal debates, internal conflicts and certainly theological as well as linguistic changes among the Hui communities of China, as they shifted away from their older traditions of studying Islam through the Persian Sufi classics that had reached China across the Silk Road through Central Asia, towards a rediscovery, or perhaps in some ways a new discovery, of Arabic texts, including new Arabic works being published in places like Cairo. But on the way, as we'll see, several of these Hui Muslim students and scholars of the early 20th century actually passed through and spent various years in India learning languages such as Urdu as well as the colonial lingua franca of English, connecting themselves then with not only the wider Muslim world but with the wider world in general. I hope you enjoy my conversation then with Yiming Ha. And if you're interested in Chinese history more broadly, I recommend you check out the Chinese History Podcast. For now, welcome back to Act Plus Chamber. So thank you, Professor Green, for coming to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Yiming. Thanks for inviting me. So Islam, as you know, has a very long history in China. And especially in today's world, China is expanding its relationship with the Muslim world. And part of this has been through the One Belt, One Road infrastructure project. But another part is that the Chinese government has also been very keen to highlight historical ties between China and Central Asia and China and the Middle East. So I'm hoping that you can shed some light on some of these ties and introduce to our listeners some of the exchanges that was going on between China and Persia and the Arabic world as well. Absolutely, yeah, that would be a yeah, pleasure to do so. So Islam entered China during the early 7th century, but it seemed to have developed in China in relative isolation 
And as we know from the example from Tokugawa, Japan, when the Tokugawa state banned Christianity and separated the Japanese Christian communities from the rest of the Catholic world, this had a significant impact on how Japanese Christianity developed. So did something similar happen in China? What was Islam like in China prior to the 19th century when there was very little or no contact with the rest of the Muslim world? The seams, and I say seams because, you know, as you mentioned, stressing and trying to discover and indeed recreate historical narratives and charters for connection of various kinds, whether maritime, uh, Silk Road, or indeed an overland one. The narratives have made it, I think, harder to actually draw out what is the, the, the real reliable evidence we have. Now, a key figure, a kind of, if you like, a sort of a, I don't know, a quasi-mythical founder, I suppose we, could, we should say, for Sino-Muslim relations, or at least Sino-Arab relations, is a figure called Saad ibn Abi Waqqas. Now, I say quasi-mythical because we know as much as we know about anybody, for, any Muslim from this period, that he did exist. He died in 674. He's one of the early, earliest converts to Islam, a companion of the Prophet Muhammad. So he's not mythical in that sense. What is perhaps on the mythical or quasi-mythical side is the widespread sort of narratives that he was actually dispatched on an embassy from the Prophet Muhammad or indeed from the uh, Rashidun, the first successors, the caliphs of, of the Prophet Muhammad to the Tang court. And indeed that he founded a, a mosque named after him in Guangzhou, formerly Canton, and indeed that he has a grave <laughs> there in, in Guangzhou. So the problem is, though, is to what extent this can be relied upon and rather than being a, a narrative historical kind of reconstruction that uh, some scholars have recently looked at in the last few years, that this figure seems to appear in Chinese or Chinese Muslim in Hui consciousness really in the last few centuries. And there is no paper trail stretching back, let's say, the 1300 years or so. That said, there evidently was early Arab trade from the Arabian Peninsula and indeed from Arab merchants across the Indian Ocean up to the South China Sea in the early centuries of Islam. But of course, to what extent that actually creates, let's say, kind of knowledge or communities is another matter. What we do know more about, really, or we can say more fully, is the fuller overland expansion of Islam and Muslim communities across Central Asia to what would we call it? We call it Xinjiang. Of course, it's not called Xinjiang, the new provinces, until the 1750s or beyond then of the conquest of the Qing dynasty. And of course, the, the period in which Islam starts to arrive in this region that was called also Altishar, the region of the six cities, or Kashgaria, we might call it. It's politically problematic to call it either Xinjiang or indeed East Turkestan. This is the space we're talking about. Now, Islam spreads across there. Indeed, Muslim communities spread across there in the period when it is actually presumably really in many ways not China after the kind of the Tang withdrawal effectively from there. And in the sort of the, the centuries before the, 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 so the Chinese, the Qing reconquest then in the 18th century. But what spreads there is really very much a, let's say, a Persian-based rather than, let's say, an Arabic-based and an Arab spread by Arabs such as Saad ibn Abi Waqqas, uh, sort of a Persian-based Islam, and indeed in many ways a, a Sufi Islam. And we get a sense of this then, that even when Islam spreads beyond this sort of Central Asian and ethnically and linguistically kind of Turkic milieu, moves further east into, let's say, China proper or, or the, the kind of Tang and subsequent empires, that when we have the Sino-Muslim or the Hui communities emerge, who, when they start to write their own historical ancestries, will be pointing to these overland routes. And indeed, we know from their own dialect, Hui Hui Hua, that there are many key religious words that are actually drawn from Persian. Perhaps a key example is the term Ahong, so the sort of Sinicized version of the Persian term, Ahund, for a religious teacher. And that's an important clue because Ahund has no Arabic root, as many Persian terms do. It's entirely from actually, ultimately, from pre-Islamic Middle Persian. So we can see linguistically, as well as in terms of the type, types of texts that become part of, if you like, of, of, of Hui Islam, as well as Turkic Islam in Central Asia, that this is a Persian-based and effectively Sufi Islam. But I suppose another thing I might put in here is the deliberation or the deliberateness with which I'm not using the term Silk Road here. 
Because that sort of term Silk Road, is it gets invented in China, but albeit by a German geologist, von Richthofen, and then spreads via his uh, Swedish protege, Sven Hayden, who of course travels much more fully in, in China, or indeed what, or what is Xinjiang by Hayden's period, and writes his famous book, The Silk Road, Sudenwagen, in, in the 1930s, which is then translated into English. And then the term sort of spreads very gradually into Chinese, and then gradually then into Islamic languages. And that concept of the Silk Road, that very modern concept, is subsequently used often very deliberately to create a sort of, if you like, a kind of a, a history of continued interactions. But in fact, the interaction seemed to be more, I think, more patchy. Our histories of, of kind of our obsession in the, the last 30 years with histories of kind of connection, I think, have overridden the many periods and, and places that were disconnected, or at least very sketchily or, or, or only very occasionally connected with periods of centuries, which allow for such things as the development of, a, of let's say, a Hui Islam that has periods of connections or certain texts that are spread, and the occasional Hui scholar might move offwards to other areas into Central Asia, or indeed into India, or even occasionally beyond. But there are these periods of connection and, and, and disconnection, and indeed historical concepts that get invented and then shared, as I'll talk to when I come to the 19th century proper, can help us understand these periods, but actually I think can really cloud and, and reshape and actually disfigure, actually, if that's a word, how we understand these earlier periods. So you've just mentioned that there were these Arabic merchants coming through the Indian Ocean to the South China Sea and then trading in these port cities, but there are also these overland connections which spread a mainly Persian-based Islam. Would it be correct to assume then that Islam in these coastal cities are more Arabic in characters, whereas Islam in the more inland areas are more Persian in character, or is that a wrong kind of generalization? I think that happens as far as I'm able to tell, and then at least for these early periods drawing on the work of scholars who specialize in this period. My sense is really that the emergence really of what you've described, a more, let's say, kind of Arabized coast and a more, let's say, Persianized interior really sort of happens in the 19th century, as we'll turn to. And I mean, insofar as we can think of, let's say, somewhere like Nanjing, okay, not the coast, but not so far in, in sort of Chinese terms from the coast, and what becomes an important sort of centre of, of Hui Sino-Muslim intellectual production there from the 17th century in particular, with the emergence of what's been called the Han Kitab syllabus, which is, let's say, Sino-Muslims, the word I use interchangeably for the Hui, as distinct from the Turkic Muslims of Central Asia and Inner Asia. Sino-Muslim writers writing these Han Kitab, this syllabus of, of texts that are actually in Chinese, that have been described as actually, these writers have been described as Muslim Confucianists. And these are key figures like Wang Dayu, who dies around 1660, Yu Zhe, dies around 1739, both based in, in, in Nanjing. And what we have there really is actually the rendering of terms and concepts, and in some cases even part of texts from these Persian Sufi classics of the likes of Jami, who lived in Herat, in fact, in what's now Afghanistan. And that's been rendered and made in some ways commensurate with sort of Confucianism and the Confucianist Chinese syllabus. But that's not really Arabic based. And that kind of stuff will, that much more sort of Arabization will emerge in the 19th century. And that's really not unique to China. This is something that is happening across the Indian Ocean world in the 19th century. And indeed, in India in the 19th century as well, as Persian and the status of Persian, these many centuries of sort of Persian-based and thereby, in many ways, a kind of Sufi Islam through this sort of long Persian middle period, if you like, of, let's say, the 11th century through the 19th century, a kind of Persian-based Islam across South as much as Central and East Asia, starts to be replaced in many ways. Are they reconnections, I suppose? This is, I suppose, the big moot point. Is this as it's presented by the Sino-Muslims, indeed the Arab reformists of the period, and indeed Indian reformists of the you know, late 19th, early 20th century. This is an, an Arabic-based rediscovery, reconnection. But that really is an assumption, whether by Western scholars, Chinese scholars, or Muslim scholars from different regions of Asia themselves, that there was this earlier point when the original spread of Islam into India or China or whatever else was really via Arabic and indeed via Arab founder figures such as this companion of the Prophet, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. 
That sounds very interesting. But before we jump to the 19th century, I just have one more question. So it always seems to me that the Mongol conquest was a pivotal moment in the spread of Islam or the development of Islam in China because the Mongols heavily utilized Muslim merchants. The Mongol nobles and the imperial family used Muslim merchants to trade. And there were a lot of Central Asian Muslims who were employed in government in China at the time. And even after the Mongols' empire fell in China, Islam continued to be important. One of the most famous Chinese Muslims was the eunuch Admiral Zheng He, who led these maritime voyages and who even went on the Hajj to Mecca. And so the Chinese were relatively familiar with Islam. But what about the other way around? What were the extent of the Persians and the Arabs' knowledge of China? Were they aware of Chinese Muslims? Uh, were there any attempts at understanding China from their side? I think here, if without going uh, into too much abstraction or, or, or splitting too many academic hairs as academics, I think it's. I hope it's helpful if we try to nuance or unpack a little bit briefly, at least what we might mean by knowledge and knowing, because I think we we need to distinguish whether actually whether from the let's say the Chinese side, whether through, let's say, the, the, the Mongol rulers of China or indeed whether from successive the Ming and so on, their knowledge of, of Islam or indeed the Arabs' sort of knowledge. Because I think we need to distinguish between, let's say, the knowledge that's available. We might think, let's say, the sociology of knowledge or the social location knowledge. There's one thing to say, okay, there's a, a private sphere of knowledge of perhaps of, of merchant groups who probably want to guard this knowledge from competition. That would seem a sort of logical assumption that actually the, the real absence of texts written by merchants seems to be in some ways proved that kind of logical assumption that merchants' knowledge of China, knowledge of conditions and vice versa is a sort of social or indeed a form of business intellectual capital for these groups that they don't want to spread. And ditto, of course, what we might have in terms of Persian texts that have been found in the certainly from the Ming and, and, and Qing imperial archives. So a governmental might keep a certain amount of diplomatic treaties that are largely in, in, in Persian, actually, it seems, from the Ming and Qing archives rather than Arabic. But again, who has access to this kind of knowledge? And then we might think of, OK, perhaps there's a, another sphere of knowledge which constitutes texts that were written and therefore in some ways more publicly available and not just available, let's say, in an imperial guarded archive in, in Beijing for example. And then we can think of turning, you know, really to your question of, let's say, the Arab and Persian side of knowledge of China. Yeah, particularly in the Mongol period, there are a few very famous histories written. The Jamia Tawarikh, as it's called, this sort of summary of histories, this universal history written by the Mongol era court historian, Rashid al-Din, who dies in 1318. And, and he has various informants about China and indeed about Buddhism. They're not necessarily direct informants, it seems, often in cases of a Tibetan Buddhist, uh, or rather, sorry, I should say a Kashmiri Buddhist, etc. Now, that's a really important source. And then we have 14th century, so subsequent Mongol era historian, both writing in, in, in Persian, but actually who, who, who draws on, on Rashid ad-Din. But the issue is here is we have to remember that in the Islamic world, as distinct from, let's say, within China, effectively printing doesn't spread, printing isn't adopted till the 19th century. Okay, there are one or two minor exceptions, but effectively not until around 1820, not in any meaningful way, till around 1850. So with these manuscript works, we don't have enough actual kind of research of, let's say, the reception and the distribution, how widely these texts were spread. And then similarly with the most famous figure who's always brought up of the example of anywhere in the Indian Ocean world unto China of kind of knowledge and awareness inter interconnection, Ibn Battuta, the great 14th century Moroccan traveller. Now, Ibn Battuta writes his, his Rihla, his great sort of travelogue in Arabic. He's not a merchant, importantly. He's a sort of a, an Arab as well as Arabic sort of, you know, kind of based legal scholar that gets work in many places along the way, including sort of diplomatic work. But in terms of the, the, the distribution and the knowledge of his text, it's not printed as far as I've been able to establish myself. Its first printing is in 1818, and that's actually in Jena, an Orientalist printing in Germany. It's printed subsequently various times in Paris. And as far as I've been able to establish myself, at least the earliest printing in any sort of, let's say, Muslim environment is the Cairo edition of 1861, which is only actually 79 pages long. I haven't actually checked this interview, as I might have done, to see if, the, if that actually includes the Chinese sections or not. 
So again, when we think of knowledge and interconnection between these regions, we've really got to think, well, actually, who is it across the, the many populations and the many kind of groups and communities across these regions, the many different institutions, legal, scholarly, merchant, governmental, who actually has awareness of one another? Rather than sort of, you know, and I think there's grand narratives of, of kind of interconnection or whatever else it might be, which indeed do spread among Muslim writers of the 19th, early 20th century, albeit using a word, ta'luqat, which really means something more emotional and actually more genealogical relations, rather than, let's say, as we would say, kind of connections. I think we can't assume that those are, if you like, a kind of universally distributed among the, the populations or, or different groups of these two regions. Yeah, I think you make a very good point that we need to consider the sources of knowledge. As far as the Chinese records of Central Asia, for example, goes, there were these embassies that were sent in the early Ming, so the early 15th century, and these uh, Confucian scholar officials who went there, they wrote travelogues, right? They described the cities and the culture, and then they published these afterwards. So uh, we know that in China, there were these texts circulating. But I guess, as you mentioned, that since printing arrived in the Middle East relatively late, I think a lot of these texts did not circulate. But I'm also curious as to where they're getting their information from, because in the Chinese case, in, in some of these texts, the uh, authors actually went to Central Asia or Persia, but it doesn't seem people like Ibn Battuta actually went to China. So are they getting their information from older texts or maybe merchants, for example? Yeah, I think in, in the case, yeah, let's say of Rashid al-Din, he doesn't go to China and he has whatever indirect intermediaries turn up, whether Kashmiris or, or others or occasionally diplomats. The Staying in that sort of, let's say, the, the pre-19th century period, in some ways, the most direct kind of source we have is a text called the Khitay Nama, so the, so the book of Kathay, I suppose, one might translate it, because, again... In one of the things that's really interested me and in when I'm looking at the 19th century onwards, when we really do have a lot more and a real sort of explosion of texts in Islamic languages on China, the printed publicly available texts too, is that what are even the basic names for something? What even do you call China? <laughs> what do you call the rule of China? Is there a name for someone as famous Confucius? And, and what are the roots to that? As it turns out, by the 19th century, I'll move on to say the, the name for Confucius that spread is actually the Latinized view, version, which shows us that the actual roots, even in the 19th century, are, of knowledge are actually indirect via European and Latinization, Latinized sort of names. So, to, staying with this Chita uh, Nama, what seems is the Ali Akbar, the figure who writes it, writes this text in Persian, is probably a figure we don't know much about him, probably a merchant from one of the cities, Turkic cities of Central Asia, some Al-Tishad or what later becomes Xinjiang, somewhere around there, or maybe further east, Ahami or somewhere like that. And he writes this text as a, of an embassy, which is probably part of the, the Ming tribute system. So that is, in a sense, a, a direct text. And then that gets passed on in manuscript form and actually seems to have been a little bit better known in the Ottoman Empire, where it's translated in, into Turkic. And it's then resurfaced in the 19th century through Orientalist and indeed through actually an Ottoman Turkish printing of it in the 19th century. So that's as good as we get in terms of, let's say, a, a pre-modern indigenous text that, that has at least as good a distribution as we might, might think of in terms of its translation between a couple of languages and its relatively early printing in, in Istanbul, mid-19th century. But there too, it's clear that Ali Akbar doesn't speak or read Chinese. His journey is a period of between weeks and a couple of months. And it seems that his attempt to render what he sees and sees comprehensible to his audience is to present China in terms that seem to be equivalent to Islamicate, Persianate kind of norms of and expectations of what an empire you know, sh should look like. That's not to say, of course, that there's no knowledge passing between Muslims and Chinese, between, let's say, between written Chinese and maybe Islamic languages. As we've seen, we've got the Han Kitab syllabus does that. And that's similar to, say, in India. You've got Indian Muslim scholars who were translating works of classical Hindu or Indic thought. The Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita being translated, similar period, at the sort of, in this imperial context into Persian, Sanskrit into Persian, you know, and, and to some extent vice versa. 
But I think we make a mistake when we just assume that sort of those not that kind of intercultural, if you like, or interlinguistic knowledge that gets created with these imperial, basically kind of territorial, continental, imperial context, particularly in imperial capitals, often at imperial courts, and not least in manuscript form. I think we make a mistake when we assume that that kind of knowledge is spread more widely. It's possible the future scholars, and I hope they do, when I say these things, I'm not saying things don't happen. But, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, trying to say, well, okay, well, if we want to sort of find out that this knowledge was more widely spread, we've got to do the archival work and, or at least the kind of the manuscript library work and see were there further manuscripts of these works that did, you know, was there a translation, I don't know, of, you know, the Bhagavad Gita that actually turns up one of these Persian translations, does that turn up in Istanbul? And the Ottoman Imperial Library is there, for example, or, or whatever else it might be with the, the Sino-Muslim texts. But again, even with the Sino-Muslim, the Hui texts, you've got to bear in mind that the the translation there is making Islam understandable, intelligible, palatable even, to the Confucian elites of the Ming and subsequently the Qing. And when I've discussed this with specialists, and I have to say, I'm, I'm not a, I, I don't read Chinese, I'm not a scholar of Chinese, so I'm drawing here on the works of like Francis Oba, V. Ben Dorbaniti, Jonathan Lippmann, Jane Frankel, Sajid Murata, Christian Peterson, various others for this sort of period, particularly with the Han Kitab. But at least the few scholars I've asked this question to, who were these books intended for? These kind of Muslim works in Chinese, these works of Muslim Confucianism. My sense is the answers I've got seem to be, that, well, either we're not sure or maybe actually intended for a, a Confucianist, a sort of Chinese audience, not for a Muslim audience. So again, there's a question when there's knowledge, which way is it flowing? It's not knowledge doesn't always flow unidirectionally, let alone move across multiple geographies and social groups. This also reminds me of the early days of Buddhism in China, right? When these Buddhist texts are being translated to Chinese and they're being put in very Confucian format and Confucian terms, try to make it understandable to a Chinese Confucian audience. But I mean, this whole issue of the dissemination and the source of knowledge, the translation of texts and how these terms get changed through translations is very fascinating. And I think we can do a whole separate episode on that alone, but I do want to move forward to the 19th and 20th century, where a lot of these interactions have started to take place. So when one looks at how 19th and 20th century Chinese history is written, especially this contact with the outside world, there's often this very intense focus on the Christian missionary activities in China. But what I find interesting about your research is that you also highlight the fact that this was a period when Chinese Muslims had begun to connect with the broader Muslim community and vice versa. There was a lot of interest among the other Muslims in China as well. So how did this play out? How and why did Chinese Muslims start reaching out to their co-religionalists overseas and vice versa? What were some of the activities or exchanges that took place? Yeah, here, I think the how is perhaps easier to answer than the why, even though perhaps the why is actually the more interesting question for that very reason. So in terms of the how do these sort of interactions, in a sense, a mutual interest, if not quite, because that's the key issue, I guess, the key problem, the mutual understanding, the mutual interest and sort of mutual center discovery of between Chinese Muslims and non-Chinese Muslims, let's say, the, the sort of mutual in, in interest and attempts to understand one another. How that happens is, as I say, the easier part to answer. It's through, effectively, the, the new communications of the 19th century that is a byproduct of sort of European imperialism and indeed of the, the, the Christian missionary presence as much in the ports of China as in the ports of Southeast Asia and the the ports of South Asia, all of which become, through those missionary and imperial networks, European missionary and European imperial networks, all of those ports become printing centers and translation centers through the missionaries, as well as transport centers through the steamships that, that come as well. So the how then is, as I say, easier through the spread of printing through the Islamic world and through South Asia which begins in the 1820s, but much more through the 1850s. And the missionary push, and in many ways the missionary example, and in many cases the missionary provision of partly dictionaries, but particularly translations and intermediary translations of, let's say, Chinese works into English or Arabic works into English that then can be accessed through the sort of, you know, the, the middle language function of, of English, which is a very widespread process in in linguistics and translation studies anyway. And what this enables is, from the Chinese side, and particularly with the Hui, and I think this is, again, another re 
point where we need to disaggregate between the Muslims of China. Now, by this point, okay, Xinjiang, Central Asia, is part of China. Of course, by the 1900s, or at least after the 1910s, with the warlordism and the civil war, actually, I suppose, you know, Xinjiang and indeed the inland regions like Yunnan, where many China Muslims where they live, are kind of slipping out of control and even contact with the coast. But nonetheless, for the, for the coast at least, and Hui Muslims, if not Turkic Muslims around the coast, start to be able to get on board these steamships and go on the hatch. One of the most influential, as well as early figures in this, is, is a figure called Ma Deshin, who dies in 1874. He's a, an influential Muslim scholar from Yunnan. And when he comes back from his Hajj in 1848, he writes a book, How He Did It, as well as actually starting to bring back then a sort of revival of Arabic teaching in a region that had been very much part of the, the Persian-based Sufi, and particularly Naqshbandi, kind of Central Asian Persian Sufi uh, traditions. And uh, Mardeshin then, as I say, is one of these figures who actually comes, coming from Yunnan, it's kind of interesting his route, what seems to be his and various other Yunnanese at this point, actually coming overland through Burma, which has been then annexed in the 19th century as part of British India, and then through Rangoon, now Yangon, and taking steamships from there. A generation later then, there's another figure, Ma Lianyuan, who born in 1841, dies in 1903, another Yunnanese Muslim who travels via Rangoon, then via steamship to Mecca. But actually, when he's in Mecca, he actually studies with an Indian teacher, and then he moves back halfway and studies in Kanpur. Uh, a town in, in northern India. And among his teachers are a figure called Rahmatullah Kadanawi, a very important Indian Muslim teacher, who actually teaches in Mecca. He's one of the founders of a, a very important madrasa in Mecca, which still survives to this day. And Kadanawi had also been extremely important, as were a number of Yunnanese Muslims by the, the mid-19th century, of these kind of engagements, responses to missionaries. And Rahmatullah Kadanawi had written this, he'd, he'd been involved in a sort of an oral debate, these things were called munazaras, with the missionaries, the Christian missionaries, and also written the fullest written response to missionary critique of Islam as well. So what we're seeing with a figure like Ma Lianyuan is we have, let's say, by the last court or the second half of the 19th century, let's say, this real kind of intermingling then of people going on the Hajj, Chinese Muslims going on the Hajj on the one hand, Indian meeting Indian Muslims in Mecca, being taught by them. Those Indian Muslims are themselves refining their ideas of Islam and indeed they're sharpening their understanding of other religions and making use of Christian missionary techniques, a printing, of polemic, of new forms, if you like, of preaching, of new forms of, of, of religious study. Because a figure like Kadanawi is actually reading the Bible in order to be able to critique its flaws in a method that is learned from the Orientalists and the missionaries, or the Orientalist side of the early Christian missionaries, who were reading the Quran and learning Arabic in order to critique it in turn. So you have this sort of, when nowadays I think in academia we're really, really interested in these inter-Asian interactions. But I think by the time this really takes off, or really, let's say, takes off again post the Mongol period in the 19th century, I haven't been able to find really very much at all that we can say is a purely inter-Asian set of interactions or knowledge base that doesn't have the Christian missionaries or the imperial infrastructures of communication, whether print and translation, or whether steamship travel as part of that. Yeah, and one of these responses to the European imperialism in the 19th and 20th century was the development of a pan-Asian movement between East Asia, but also Southeast Asia and the Middle East. So how did this exchange between Chinese Muslims and Muslims in the Arabic world and the Persian world factor into this pan-Asian movement that was being created at this time? Frankly, the Pan-Asianists largely either ignored Islam or deliberately excluded it, or in various cases, including some of the most prominent and, so to speak, distinguished Pan-Asianists, actually denigrated Islam as seeing it as not truly an, an Asian religion. You know? And of course, depending on which Pan-Asianists one's looking at, the true Asian religions that were seen as the religious and cultural and in some ways linguistic sort of ties that they, the Pan-Asianists wanted to activate or elevate accentuate as sort of as tying Asia together were either Buddhism and Hinduism. 
So with Buddhism, one's looking at figures like Tagore or Prabod Bhagchi, the you know, very distinguished and very significant Bengali Hindu scholar of Chinese Buddhism, which he learns and studies Chinese, albeit partly through, again, the interplay of Orientalist European, in this case, in many cases, French teachers, French uh, sinologists. But even a figure, a sort of an intellectual, is more than a political Pan-Asianist, but nonetheless a very major figure like Bhagchi, builds on Tagore's uh, attempts to establish Chinese teaching and the teaching of Chinese and connections with China as well as Japan at his university in Shantaniketan in Bengal. Even a figure like Bhagchi is really interested in it, it's Sanskrit, that you know, China is on the receiving end, if you like, of, of a Sanskritic Buddhism. And India is, as it were, is, is the, I don't know, the active participant in China then is the passive recipient. And then you have other figures like Benoit Sarkar, who actually visits China in the 1910s, actually worked in a missionary libraries in, in Shanghai, drawing on English language missionary texts about China, and then writes a, a book in, in English, printed in Shanghai, in one of these new presses. That's, I suppose I should have you know, perhaps have, have mentioned the, the very influ- important and to me influential work, Christopher Reed on Gutenberg in Shanghai, and if you like, the remaking of Chinese printing for the use for printing Chinese as well as other languages, including Arabic and, and English in the, the ports of China, such as Shanghai, the, the adoption of typography uh, sort of, uh, and, uh, and then of lithography. And our other Indian Pan-Asianist here, Sarkar, prints a book on the Chinese religion in which he, he claims that Buddhism, indeed all the religions of China, are actually versions of Hinduism. So even Buddhism is part of a greater Hinduism. So what I'm seeing going on with the various Pan-Asianists, whether coming out of India or whether from China or indeed, of course, Japan and other sort of major projector of Pan-Asianism, is, well, it, it's Asia on whose term? You know, is it Sanskritic and Indian terms? Is India the center of of this Pan-Asian culture? Is it Japan that's going to be the centre, culturally or indeed politically, through its own colonising projects, etc.? And it's important to mention here too, and this is something that my forthcoming book, Asia Self-Discovery, what I set up is the introductory part, is that the very concept of Asia, of course, is introduced to Asia only in the modern period. Earliest in, really in China, through the Jesuit missions of Ricci and so on, and the maps that come there, albeit perhaps even then only more restricted to uh, the Ming court literati and so on. But really, the, the concept of Asia only spreads through most of Asia in the 19th century, through translations particularly of geographies, and particularly of, of missionary geographies that translate the term Asia into various Asian languages. And then this provides the conceptual wherewithal for the Pan-Asianists. So we have this kind of, in a sense, double problem, really, that the Pan-Asianists are, are using this term that isn't necessarily familiar to many people who we now think of as Asia. It's not their primary term of reference. It might not even be a term that they know of if they haven't had access to these new geographies being taught in the new, whether the modernizing national schools or indeed in the missionary schools in different parts of this continent. And of course, the various earlier, let's say, indigenous and competing geographical concepts that might well have more resonance. And, and then, as I say, there's the additional issue of whether the Pan-Asianists think of Islam as being an Asian religion, and by and large, they don't. And indeed, whether the Muslim writers of the period do actually have Asia as their primary unifying concept, or whether for them, Islam and certain older indigenous concepts within that, whether an ummah, sort of a community of Muslims that isn't necessarily a geographical term, those, of course, geographical implications, or a, a term like a, a Dardal Islam, whether these terms have a primary kind of um, role rather than Asia, Asia, or however it's vocalised in different languages of that continent, or indeed whether there's a melding of the two. Some of the figures I look at in the 19th century then are these new historians, both Hui and Indian Muslim historians, indeed others, who start to actually create a conceptual language and a kind of creator history that is some ways between indigenous and indeed of drawing on, let's say, European ideas as well, because they're part of, you know, what I'm not trying to say is, okay, everything's derivative from Europe. What I'm trying to show actually is, as a number of, I think, current scholars scholars have, I'm thinking of Ahmed Ashams's recent book on the rediscovery of the Arab classics, in which, you know, he shows how major Arabic Cairo-based intellectuals in the 19th century are actually having these discussions and dialogues with Orientalists, and, and each of them, in a sense, learning and discussing and having conversations with the other. 
And I think that's what we're seeing here too, because after all these missionary translations from, let's say from Chinese into English that then get, you know, translated into, in turn, when I look at this Urdu translation of Confucius, that actually comes via, I have to say, by the 1930s, via a British astrologer, occultist, member of the Theosophical Society, who based his translation of Confucius on a, an earlier missionary translation, etc. But of course, those missionary translations themselves have, of course, Chinese, what would one call them? Co-translators, I suppose, would probably be the, the best, uh, most accurate term. Yeah. So by the 19th century there, we have Indian Muslims who are, we might very loosely say are these pan-Asianists, but when we actually look closely at what they're writing and their conceptions and their language, their conceptual language, They'd be writing perhaps about an Indian Ocean as a, as a space of where Arabs move from Arabia and bring Islam to India. And then they go to China, coastal China, Saad ibn Abi Waqqas. This is when he comes into the story, into the, the historical narrative in a, in a big way. But again, as I said, the, the language, as I mentioned, is a language of taluqat. It's a sort of an Arabic term here that has a sort of a sense of linkages, of genealogy, of relations that have that deeper emotional relation, and then perhaps say something that we would just say is about kind of interaction or connection, these more emotionally cold, perhaps neutral, and even perhaps even economistic language. Do we know then how the Chinese Muslims were responding to these Pan-Asian miswritings? Because I always get the sense that there was also this, for at least some of them, there was this intense nationalism as well going on parallel. Because if you look at, for example, during the Boxer movement, one of the, the, the fiercest resistance against the Western invaders were actually Muslims, the Gansu Braves, who were led by Muslim leaders, and they fought very fiercely against the Europeans. So how would the Chinese Muslims be responding to these Pan-Asianist writings that were denigrating Islam? Here, I mean, there's been a lot of work on modern Hui, both in terms of the rise of, let's say, Hui patriotism or indeed Hui republican nationalism and even beyond that as a Hui involvement in the PRC. And that's sort of its form of whatever we might think about its community formation history writing. And I think here of the Japanese scholar Masumi Matsumoto has you know, really worked quite extensively on this and Yufeng Mao sort of Chinese scholars worked on the Hajj and the new schools, the new nationalist schools, they been founded in Beijing and other places for, for and by the Hui. And also there's been a scholars like John Chen and, and Zeynep Segert who've worked on Hui writings, more genuine interactions with the, the, the wider Muslim world. Of, um, but my own case study really has been a, a very fascinating figure. And again, John Chen has worked on the very fascinatingly important in the groundbreaking work of working on Hei Weiliang's Chinese publications. But I've looked at a text, this figure Hei Weiliang writes in, in Urdu, and also he also writes a subsequent text in Arabic. And what's interesting here, who is this guy? Well, he's a figure from rural Hunan, who comes to coastal China, gets an education there, and then actually gets on, on board ship to where? Well, to Calcutta. And again, it really helps to actually think of the geography as an infrastructure of these interactions between, let's say, the Arab world or the Arab Middle East and China, because both infrastructurally and geographically, and, in, and we start to see it in a figure like Badruddin Chini, as I call him, as he gets known in India, and Badruddin Sini, as he gets known, you know, Badruddin, the crescent of the faith, the crescent moon of the faith, as it becomes known in, in, in Arabic and Urdu, and indeed subsequently in Iran as well. We get a sense that their access both to the Arab Middle East and to Arabic comes through other parts of Asia, and particularly South Asia. And you know, in, in this case, then colonial India is the communicational epicenter of this connected Asian world. And of course, it is insofar as that we don't have a pan-Asian or trans-Asian railroad system in this period. The closest is the, of course, the Trans-Siberian Railroad, and its links then to what becomes the late imperial and the Republican era's Chinese railroad system, which largely comes over north and then, of course, and through Manchuria down to Beijing. So it's through here that when the, the Hei Weiling, Badr-Din Chini, sets off on his Islamic studies and he goes to Calcutta. That's where he can get his ship from Shanghai via Hong Kong and then via Singapore, which becomes also another important place of Arabic printing and of journals that move between Cairo and Calcutta and Singapore and then up to the Huey and the new schools that are rediscovering Arabic in this period through steam and print. And Badruddin Heiweliang studies, uh, he's passed on from Calcutta, where he first meets some Indian Muslim scholars. And then he goes to one of the new Indian Muslim institutions that have been founded in the city of Lucknow in North India, the Nadwat al-Ulama, which was one of these new modernizing schools. There's actually been set up 
very deliberately by a figure called Shibli Numani, who, a major Indian Muslim scholar who travels to the Middle East with Sir Thomas Arnold, who's a, a British Arabist, who's very sympathetic to, to Muslims. And Arnold, and I'll have a little sort of sidetrack here because it's important for Hei Weiling Badruddin's story. Arnold, before he moves to Waichi, while he's in India and teaching in India for many years and teaching various Indian Muslims and part of this rediscovery of Arabic, as it was the language of Islam, Thomas Arnold writes a book in 1890s called The Preaching of Islam. And here he's actually very much reacting, as, 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 as it were, as a Victorian liberal, a Victorian Islamophile. He's reacting against the earlier, let's say, kind of colonial and evangelical missionary narrative of Islam as being spread by the sword. Wherever the Muslims went, they conquered by the sword and converted forcibly. And his language, the title, The, the Preaching of Islam, is a 19th century kind of missionary revision of, of Muslim history. Revision of, it's a very important text in terms of, if you like, a global, at least a pan-Asian, or indeed an African model of a global spread of how Islam spreads worldwide. It's an early world history, or an early Islamic world history. And his model is partly a, a 19th century missionary Christian template, but he's actually using the Sufis, including Arab Sufis, has to be said, as the key figures who spread Islam peaceably. And Thomas Arnold there becomes, again, an, a very important kind of conversationalist with various of these Muslims, both Indian and Chinese, and ultimately Turkish and Egyptian. How? Well, he travels with Shibli, who becomes like the, the, the sort of intellectual leading light of this Nadwat al-Ulama, this school where Huay Muslim will travel to study in the, the 1920s. Thomas Arnold travels with him on his first journey into the Middle East. Subsequently, the preaching of Islam is it's translated into Urdu, and it's also translated into Turkish, printed in Istanbul, and printed also in Cairo, and Arabic translations as well. And Indian and Arab and uh, Turkic Muslims take on this narrative themselves and start to use Arnold as a way of understanding, because Arnold has his chapter on the spread of Islam to China. And this is, if you like, an Arabic-based model that brings in the early Arabic text that Arnold, via the Orientalists, are discovering. And indeed, Indian Muslims, like Shibli, but also like Haiwelling's direct teacher, Suleiman Nadvi, are also rediscovering these Arabic texts, often through Orientalist translations or through traveling to Europe and going through the Orientalist libraries. Rather like, you know, kind of the, the Egyptian intellectuals who have been studied by Ahmed Shamsi. So again, this co-discovery in a sense by Europeans and, and Asians from different regions then of this past and creating new narratives together. Hey, Weiliang and Badruddin, and that very fact that he has a Chinese name and an Arabic name, or indeed a Chinese name and an Urdu, a Persian name, and then an Arabic version, Al-Chini, the Chinese, or Asini, because there's no church in Arabic, itself gives us some sense of that these Chinese Muslims had to literally translate themselves in order to appear Muslim when they go to these other regions. Now, what does he do, Badruddin, when he's in India? He learned Arabic, but he also learns Urdu. He seems to learn Arabic through Urdu, in a sense, because that's the syllabus at the schools he's at, both in Lucknow and then in Aligarh, but not the Aligarh Muslim University, but a, 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 a different one. And what's really fascinating about Hay is that, at least for my purposes, in 1935, he writes an entire book in Urdu, which is published under the title Chini Musliman, the Chinese Muslims. So he's then presenting to Indian Muslim readers a history of who the Chinese Muslims are. So we have here, we have inter-Asian interaction here, linguistically, everything. This is the, you know, for me, absolutely fascinating text. And we even have, as it were, the evidence that it was directly written because there's a foreword that written by a couple of different major Indian Muslims that say, Hei Weling wrote this himself in Urdu. It's not some sort of co-write written text because he spent several years in India. And what we have here then is, is Hei Weling trying to working through a kind of history of how the Muslims in China came about. And he's drawing on these kind of two strands that I talked about in answer to your first question, that anybody who looks up any article, any intro on Islam in China is going to know about, oh, the early Arabs that I've already mentioned, this quasi-mythical sort of uh, ambassador from the Prophet Muhammad's period to the Tang, and also the Central Asian, Turkic route, etc. And what's really fascinating is that Hai is, is writing this in Urdu. But for example, he doesn't have a term like the Silk Road. We would now absolutely think, oh, this is Silk Road. But I really think we have to be careful not to 
project back these concepts that make everything seem so obvious and come with a lot of intellectual and historiographical baggage in English. That term doesn't exist yet in, in Urdu, nor in Arabic, nor I don't think in Chinese. I don't think Sven Hayden's works have been quite translated into Chinese in that period. I think they're translated into Japanese in the 30s, as the early stage languages I'm aware of. So what does he call it? It's these two terms, the Rahi Bahri, sea route, and the Rahi Hoshki, a dry route, if you like, the desert route, rather the less, I don't know, redolent or poetic than the Seidenstrasse, the, the silk route. But nonetheless, what we have going on in Hay is a sense of he's referring to a very important Russian account of the origins of the Chinese Muslims by a Russian Orientalist, of course, through the Russian engagement through Siberia and Manchuria with the Hui, and then particularly with Thomas Arnold's book, The Preaching of Islam, and his account. And he's also drawing upon the new methods of historical source criticism to actually talk really rather critically about this founder figure and his supposed grave. And uh, Hai Badruddin is himself critical about, is this a grave or not? But he's receiving these critical methods, these critical historiographical methods of source criticism that one might say, oh, that's European historicism, that's von Ranke. But we might as well say, is this English? Oh, no, it's really German. But this point has been really domesticated by Indian Muslims. He's actually learning these methods of historical source criticism from his teacher in, in India. And Nadvi is himself writing then his own Urdu history of the Arabs in the 1930s at the same time, of the Arabs across the Indian Ocean. So again, to return to, I suppose, in, in, in your question about Pan-Asianism and indeed about the Arabs, when did the Arabs come on the scene? It's figures like Nadvi, an Indian Muslim, and Badruddin Chini, Stini, a.k.a. Heiweliang, who are, in a sense, rediscovering or repositioning the Arabs in this period through their shared discovery of Arabic and indeed of Arabic sources that is also part of this dialogue with figures like Thomas Arnold and indeed the Encyclopedia of Islam, which is one of the, the sources that's used by Nadwi in his writing of History of the Arabs, the Arab relations is the term that both Nadwi and uh, Badruddin, when he goes on to write any subsequent Arabic text after learning Urdu, he writes an Arabic extraordinary linguist, an extraordinary kind of historian. So it's not, in a sense, Asia that's the key term here. It's not Pan-Asianism, but in a sense, there's a, a Pan-Arabism and, and a history of relations that are being driven through Arabs as the interrelating, I should say, perhaps, rather than interconnecting figures between Indian Muslims, Chinese Muslims, and Middle Eastern Muslims. And what we're seeing here, as I'll finish off with this point, is that the intervening centuries of overland Persian-based interactions and indeed the learning of Persian is dropping out or at least kind of falling down the linguistic hierarchy and falling down the syllabus in China as much as in India. It's been Persian is disappearing in all of these places at the same time. And that enables then the writing of histories in which the Arabs of center stage, even if Asia as a concept, let alone Pan-Asianism, are, uh, are perhaps, I think, of really secondary significance, if that. That's very interesting to learn that the idea that Arabs played a key role in the spread of Islam in China doesn't really take center stage until this late uh, in history, in, in the 19th and 20th centuries, as a result of this exchange. But the events that happened afterwards, so World War II, for example, changes a lot of the imperial infrastructure that was in place that facilitated this exchange. And after the end of the Second World War, there's a lot of decolonization going on, a lot of new nation states that are arising. And then in China, you have the Chinese Civil War and then the subsequent communist takeover of China and the nationalist government that flees to Taiwan. So what does all this mean for this exchange that you've described in the late 1800s and early 1900s? Did end with the Second World War and the Chinese Civil War? I, th I think in some ways it, it does end, or at least it goes on to a long pause. And, and I think this goes back to my earlier point, that we really have to reckon with the impact of long periods of, 
of disconnection or the breaking of relations and relationships, let's say. When we think of networks, networks need to be sustained. I think we know through our experience of COVID, social networks, they can break down even over a period of a couple of years, let alone a whole generation or two, and then the closing of institutions, etc. So yeah, certainly with World War II, there's a big breaking down and disassembling of many of those relations. Of course, the end of the British Empire, the end of the, the Japanese Empire, of course, the creation of the nation states, and the expulsion or fleeing of many populations, the Indian population, because of course these Muslim interactions that I've been talking about with Indian Muslims are part of a, a larger presence of non-Muslim merchants and, and large numbers of, let's say, Sikh, uh, Punjabi and other Indian policemen and soldiers, uh, particularly in the ports of China, but also in other places as guards or as police or soldiers and indeed as merchants. So these communities either flee, there's a number of boats in 1942, 41 rather, leaving Shanghai, ditto from the ports of Japan, etc., etc. Yeah, I think World War II and it's the new world that emerges thereafter does make a, a big difference. But nonetheless, World War II and the politics of World War II, and here again drawing on the work really of, of Yu Feng Mao and, and, and John Chen, there are a number of actually of, of, of Republican embassies, of actually of Republican China that are set. And, and the... The Hui scholars, this whole generation of Hui scholars that have been sent to India, but more fully actually to Cairo and have learned a bunch of languages. And people have worked on these, Sri Bendor Benite, I think was probably the pioneer figure here really of the, the, the students in China, one of whom actually translates the Analects directly into, into Arabic. Again, a really important development in the 1930s. These figures become you know, part of the politics of the nationalist, uh, Chinese nationalist politics in World War II, and they become diplomatic go-betweens to all kinds of places, to the Middle East, to India, to Southeast Asia, and, and to Turkey, as well as to Iran. But after then, with the Chinese Communist takeover and the end of the 1940s, then, yeah, we do have a sort of a re-separation. And I think it's not really till the 1980s then, with the reopening of China, and then with the Hui rather than the Uyghurs, again, so the Sino-Muslims with the Hui, policies, I think, in the PRC of claims at least of freedom of religion or freedom of Islam, at least for the in Hui regions, become used as a means of diplomatic leverage with the Gulf states and particularly with Saudi Arabia for creating oil supplies in many ways, diplomatic relations, trade relations, and, and particularly oil supplies. And actually, this is a problem that Japan had as well. And Japan had used the same policies in the 20s and 30s, when the first mosques were founded in Japan in the 1930s, because, of course, Japan and its own politics of World War II and of, and of its industrialization requires Middle Eastern oil or oil from elsewhere as well. So we do see that, and, and figures like the actually the Saudi the scholar, Mohammed al-Sudaili, has worked on the more recent, in the 80s, 90s, of the creation of, of a Chinese Salafism through these interactions. And I should stress here, for the I think the, the good of Muslims in China, that this is often the official Saudi Salafism, which is a peaceful, pacifist and quietist Salafism. You have to bear in mind that the many forms of Salafism and Salafi jihadism is only one and probably minority expression of, of that. So again, there's this reopening in the 80s onwards through to the present day, at least for the Hui. And that's created Arab-style mosques in China that have begun to replace the older Chinese, Confucian, Buddhist temple-looking mosques of earlier centuries that exist in older centres like, uh, like Beijing and, and so on. So yeah, in a sense, the, the story goes on. And, uh, and it's in a sense why I recently wrote a book a, a year or two ago, uh, Global Islam, a very short introduction. And, and again, it's looking at kind of three periods of connection and disconnection, really. And I ended that book with what was the onset of COVID, just as I finished it and pointing to, I think, of a, a new era of a new global era or a new era across the Muslim world, I think, of disconnections and across Asia as well. And perhaps what we've seen in the last 30 years of those official and Chinese government enabled interactions, I'd imagine changed whether we ended or not, I suppose, uh, future years will tell. Yeah, yeah. And especially now, of course, China is engaging with the Muslim world once more, but for very different purposes and through very different means. And of course, how Chinese politics is developing internally in China also has repercussions for the Hui Muslims. It's, it's been a very politicized and complicated political issue now to talk about Islam in China. 
But uh, thank you so much, Professor Green, for sharing all this wonderful information about the exchange that was happening between China and the rest of the Muslim world, especially in the 19th and 20th century. It seems to be another one of those very pivotal moments in terms of how Islam in China developed. Uh, certainly very fascinating. Thank you, Yiming. It's been kind of a pleasure and an honor to sort of talk in a field which isn't really my own, but uh, I've been trying to stand on the shoulders of giants of the many scholars, Chinese, Japanese, European, and North American, who have enabled my own sort of work on the 19th century uh, reconnections. Thanks so much for, for listening. Da 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 da